Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, May 17th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And this live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to monitor it periodically and answer questions as they come up. In these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news, and uh, here's what I plan to cover today. <clears throat> it, had, it has been a very slow term um, so far uh, in terms of opinion issuances, but it looks like the court is now starting to pick up the pace and starting its final push to get all of its pending cases decided before uh, it goes in recess at the end of June. Um, on This week, Monday, May 14th, the court issued opinions in five cases. Uh, so we'll be discussing each of those decisions in a little bit. Also on Monday this week, the court granted two new cases for next term, and I'll uh, briefly talk about each of those. Uh, before we get to that, um, quickly going to talk about a few other uh, just pieces of news and developments at the court. Um, so let's get started and dive right in. So the first is the latest uh, capital case, the latest um, execution um, that the, uh, the court uh, had to deal with. This is the case of Juan Castillo, Castillo, um, who, uh, was, uh, scheduled for execution yesterday, that's May 16th, um, in Texas. Now, normally, typically when, uh, there's an execution scheduled anywhere, this, this typically means last minute stay applications to the Supreme Court. Um, often there are, uh, the, uh, counsel, the attorneys for the, uh, condemned inmate are, uh, working, uh, through, uh, multiple, uh, avenues to try and, uh, achieve some sort of last minute um, stay of the execution. They may be going through state habeas corpus processes. They're often uh, typically filing a last minute stay application with the Supreme Court, and they may be uh, going through whatever um, clemency procedures, either through a state's governor or through some sort of parole board, whatever happens to exist in the particular state in question. Um, but there's almost always a last minute stay application to the Supreme Court, just kind of a last ditch effort Um to have the execution stayed, and then that usually results in a, a uh, decision from an order from the court, either granting or denying that, usually on the day the ex- execution is scheduled, very last minute. That did not happen here in this case, and, and I'm going to come back to I'll explain why in, in a moment. So uh, this case, Juan Castillo was convicted of a 2003 robbery and murder and sentenced to death. Um, Castillo uh, was... Uh, uh, apparently involved in an, an ambush uh, of a uh, uh, a victim, uh, along with several uh, co-defendants who were also convicted but received uh, lesser sentences. Um, Castillo, however, has continued to had consi- continued to insist on his innocence. Now, um, Castillo's counsel had filed a cert petition with the Supreme Court back in March. Um, and this is not uh, uncommon either. Um, these uh, capital cases tend to um, there, there's uh, you know, multiple different um, uh, phases of the litigation, and they, and they often involve multiple petitions over the years uh, between a conviction and an ultimate execution. Multiple petitions up to the court, um, so it's not unusual for there to be uh, one of these petitions. Um, this petition was filed in March, and the basic arguments that were being made in that petition before the court. Um, were that there were due process violations involved in the state habeas corpus proceedings, and specifically that the state proceedings were not conducted according to the established uh, procedures under state law, and that certain rule rulings against 
uh, Mr. Castillo were made without any opportunity for him to present evidence um, uh, or contest uh, the the arguments being made. Um, and the the argument is basically that the the habeas corpus in the federal system is is governed by a statute known as the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Uh, it's AEDPA, and it's normally just uh, pronounced EDPA. Um, and that the uh, EDPA, the, the the federal processes, um, the, the, one of the the main effects of the federal law is to channel um, habeas corpus through the state courts. The federal courts are, have to defer to uh, in, in um, defer to many state decisions and uh, and um, uh, inmates in state prison who are who are challenging their conviction or their sentence uh, normally have to raise all their challenges through state processes before they're allowed to bring them to federal court. So everything is channeled through state court. And the argument basically is that when we have this system where where um, federal habeas corpus is reliant on the state system and everything going through the state courts first, it kind of imposes an obligation on the federal courts to um, really ensure that the state procedures are being um, implemented in a fair way. Um, so that, that's the, the basic idea of the the argument that was made. Um, now, interestingly, so the, the uh, execution was scheduled for yesterday, May sixteenth. Um, the uh, the cert petition was set. Uh, it was calendared for discussion at the court's May tenth private conference. So that's the last uh, Thursday's private conference, and it's at these private conferences that the court has um, for each of these conferences a a, a lengthy list. Of uh, pending cert petitions that the court is going to rule on one way or the other, um, and just because a petition is on that lengthy list doesn't mean that the court actually necessarily gives it um, much formal discussion at, the, at those uh, those conferences. Some some cases uh, the, the, are, are determined by the the, the justices beforehand that, that there's no real interest in taking the case, and they don't get much discussion. Other cases where there's uh, some justices pushing to take the case will be discussed, but this was on the list for the May 10th private conference. Now, normally when the court has one of these private conferences, the following Monday, the court list, uh, releases an orders list that, um, among other things, lists all of the petitions that have been denied. Well, this Monday, May 14th, in the orders list, um, Castillo's petition was denied. Uh, now, this is just a single line among 200 or so petitions that were denied in Monday's orders list. So it's just, uh, you know, not anything obvious on there, but, but, uh, the, uh, Castillo's, um, case is listed just in the, in, in the middle of, um, uh, page, page after page after page of, um, of denied petitions. So, um, it, you know, it seems likely that what happened here was the attorneys didn't bother to file a last minute stay application. Um, because they probably figured that their last best hope, which was this uh, cert petition, had been not denied only two days earlier. Um, and, uh, you know, the claims that they, they would have made in a last minute stay are the same claims that the court had just considered, uh, and denied only two days earlier. And there wouldn't be any point in filing those exact same claims again, only to have them, uh, immediately dis- denied. Um, so there was no last minute stay application and, uh, the execution was carried out, um, yesterday. So uh, that's it with that. Um, moving on to a little uh, lighter uh, piece of news. Um, right now, uh, playing on 179 screens across the country is the movie RBG. Uh, this is a uh, biographical documentary about Ruth Bader, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, this movie actually opened on May 3rd, so two weeks ago. I've been remiss in not mentioning it previously, but it's uh, been getting a lot of attention lately, and it's uh, expanded to more screens uh, uh, in its uh, second week of 
of uh, of uh, airing. Um, and it's uh, it's a it's a biography, and it it uh, focuses on her work as an attorney for the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and the uh, six cases that she brought to the Supreme Court, five of which she won uh, in her later appointment to the court. Um, I, and it also uh, um, has an, emphasizes her her long marriage to the late uh, Marty Ginsburg, who was instrumental in lobbying behind the scenes to get her nominated to the Supreme Court. And the 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 movie apparently. Uh, discusses the current uh, notorious RBG phenomenon, which has uh, in just the last few years turned uh, the justice into uh, something of a, a pop culture icon of sorts. Um, it was originally a, a narrow release, only 34 screens in its first week, but it was expanded to additional theaters in its second week. And in its second week, it actually um, broke uh, the into the uh, the top 10 uh, uh, box office, um, uh, in, in terms of uh, box office revenues, uh, but with uh, $1.2 million in its second week, it's not exactly challenging the Avengers for box office dominance. But uh, starting tomorrow for its third week, it's expanding into 330 screens, so it'll be available in more places. I haven't seen this movie yet, but uh, according to reviews, uh, the reviews have been overwhelmingly positive. Um, based on the reviews, it sounds like there's not really anything in this movie that would be new or surprising to people who are already familiar with her life story through uh, biographies or her public speaking tours uh, where she spoke after her, uh, her uh, um, book last year, um, collecting various of her writings of hers over the years. If you're familiar with her story already, there's probably not a whole bunch new, but uh, just the, the fact of this movie and, and the reception it's been getting is, is just interesting for what it shows about, um, about uh, the, the recent, uh, you know, celebrity uh, status of uh, Justice Ginsburg. Um, uh, that's that's all for the uh, news this week. So we'll move on to the cases. I mentioned there were two new grants this week, two new granted cases. Um, these That brings us up to a total of 14 cases uh, that the court has so far granted for next term. Um, so this is the term beginning in October, the, the term uh, when after the court returns from its summer recess. So these new cases will likely be argued in October or November um, you know, the, the, the actual argument calendar won't come out for a while yet, but probably October or November. Um, and the court, just based on the timing that's needed for, um, briefing to give the parties time to, uh, to do full briefing and, fi- and, uh, before oral argument, uh, the court needs to basically fill its fall calendar. That's October, November, December before it goes on summer recess. I mentioned they have 14 cases granted so far to, f- to really completely fill their argument schedule it would take uh, 34 cases. That would give them uh, two cases a day for every scheduled argument day in October through November. Uh, in recent years, they've had a light fall calendar each uh, each of the past several years. Um, so it's very possible that they they won't uh, they won't uh, grant that many cases uh, before they go on recess for the summer. But it's just something we'll be watching for the next few weeks. Uh, how many more cases do they add? to their calendar before they uh, go their separate ways. So let's talk quickly about those two cases. The first case is called BNSF Railroad Company v. Luce. And this is a case about the Railroad Retirement Tax Act. Now, just briefly, both of these cases are kind of um, uh, obscure niche uh, kind of issues, uh, but there's still some, some interesting things about them. But again, this first case is about the Railroad Retirement Tax Act. Now, if you've been following the Supreme Court this term, this may sound familiar. It's the same statute that's at issue in the case Wisconsin Central v. United States, which is a case the court heard this year that's still outstanding. We're still waiting for an opinion in that case. Now, the Railroad Retirement Tax Act, or RRTA, 
is a depression era statute that's uh, very similar in function to social security, but specific to the railroad industry. So basically railroad employees uh, have a payroll tax paid in part uh, from the, uh, the employees uh, out of the employee salary and partly paid by the employer. And that goes to fund retirement benefits for these railroad employees. Now the question at issue in this new case is, are payments made for lost wages taxed under the RRTA? So, so if 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 someone uh, sues a railroad and as part of their uh, their, their uh, um, winnings in in the court case, they're they're awarded lost wages. Does that payroll tax apply to those lost rate wages? Now, the the wages uh, the the taxation under the RRTA um, is, is on the employee's compensation, which is defined in the statute as any form of money remuneration paid to an individual for services rendered as an employee to one or more employers. Uh, now, that money remuneration, that's the term that's specifically at issue in the case, uh, the Wisconsin Central case this term. But the the question, um, the language that's really at issue in, in this new case is the uh, payment, the remuneration for services rendered uh, as an employee. So the question is, are lost wages payment for services rendered? The argument, one, you know, on one side, there's the argument that just by that plain language, um, they're not. Uh, this is this is payment for uh, for work that was never um, actually uh, conducted. These, these were not services rendered. It's it's you know hypothetical uh, service someone could have performed uh, had they uh, you know been able to work, um, <clears throat> but uh, but it's not services rendered. On the other side, there's an argument that that there's a a long history, uh, uh, according to the uh, the railroads. The IRS has consistently interpreted this since 1956 uh, to include um, uh, lost payment for lost wages. And there's also an argument that a, a closely related statute called the Railroad Retirement Act, um, which which actually uh, deals with the benefits that get paid out um, to uh, railroad employees, that specifically includes payment for lost time in uh, under this uh, services rendered uh, payment for services rendered category. Um, so, so that's that's the the, the basic issue. The, the 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 facts in the case are, are about a, a railroad employee who sued the sued the railroad for work related injuries, was awarded thirty thousand dollars for lost ra- wages. The railroad then paid the taxes on uh, those lost wages. Um, including the portion of the tax that would uh, be the employee's contribution and ask the court to reduce that 30000 award by the amount of the employee contribution that the railroad had paid in in taxes. Uh, the court refused, saying it was actually not taxable under this act. So this is you know important to the railroads because uh, they, they may be um, subject to different uh, requirements in different jurisdictions if there's a conflicting interpretations of this. The railroad says it was required to withhold and pay the taxes to the government, um, but uh, in some circuit, circuits, uh, the uh, courts have said that this is not taxable. So the railroad still has to, uh, to pay, but they can't actually withhold the money from the employee. So it's a you know little conflict here. Um, it's you know as I said, an obscure ish- issue. It's probably not of interest to many people outside of the railroad industry, but it's an interesting case to explore how the court. Um, approaches issues of, of pure statutory interpretation. And there's also the issue uh, lurking here about um, a concept known as Chevron deference, which is uh, the deference that courts give to um, administrative agencies. Here's the IRS's interpretation of this uh, Railroad uh, Retirement Tax Act. Um, and that has been controversial, the Chevron doctrine um, 
both uh, just in general, whether that doctrine is, is sound in the first place and how, how it should be applied in particular cases. So uh, it's, uh, those are some potentially interesting things to watch about that case. So the second new case, moving on, is called Aaron Liquid Systems Corp v. DeVries. And this is a case, this is another, this is a real niche. It's about products liability under maritime law. Maritime law is the law governing, uh, the, the sea. Um, and the, the, the facts of this case, there's, there's, uh, two separate, uh, uh, plaintiffs in the case, um, each, each of whom was in the Navy at some point in time. One was in the late 1950s and one was in the late 1970s. And both of whom were exposed to asbestos at some point during their job. Um, they later uh, developed uh, illness uh, allegedly related to the asbestos exposure and sued various entities, including, and this is what's relevant to this case, the manufacturers of manufacturers of certain equipment that was used on board the Navy ships. Now, the issue here, though, is the manufacturers they sued were not the ones who actually supplied the asbestos. They supplied what's referred to as bare metal parts to the Navy, and the Navy then supplied the asbestos insulation. All right, I just, my feed dropped out again. I'm sorry for the interruption. I hope you're still with me. Um, but I was just saying that the, uh, this, um, in this case, this is uh, Aaron Liquid Systems Corp v. DeVries. The manufacturers uh, that are, who are the the defendants in the case, they supplied um, bare metal parts to the Navy, and that refers to um, parts that do not actually have the uh, asbestos insulation, um, and uh, the Navy would supply the insulation or replaceable asbestos components that were used in some of these, these parts. Now, the issue here is, some jurisdictions, um, just in 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 their their uh, uh, tort law uh, governing this this kind of uh, asbestos claim, they have a rule that's referred to as the bare metal rule, uh, which says that a manufacturer who doesn't actually supply the asbestos or asbestos parts can't be held liable for injuries due to asbestos. Um, the question here is, does that bare metal rule apply under maritime law? Um, the lower court in this particular case said no, said they, they applied a reasonably foreseeable standard, meaning was it reasonably foreseeable when the m- manufacturer supplied these products that asbestos or asbestos components would be used uh, um, in, in the uh, equipment that they supplied. Now, maritime law is, is, a, is an interesting area because it's a rare area of federal law that is largely created by the courts in a common law fashion. Um, the, the vast majority of, of federal law that's applied by federal courts is statutory law. So uh, Congress passes statutes uh, governing various things, and then the courts interpret those statutes, interpret the language of those statutes, how different statutes interact. And uh, they, in, in some cases, they may have to fill in gaps where a statute doesn't kind of specify everything you would need to know. So there's some gap-filling function. But for the most part, the law that they're applying is is based on statutes. But in the maritime law area, um, it's it's similar to the way that state courts often develop state tort law and contract law, things like that. Uh, maritime law is court developed and the court uh, just uh, establishes and develops uh, rules in a case by case fashion um, unless Congress steps in to to uh, overrule the courts or or to you know lay down certain standards. Um, so this is the, here the court will have to to, to is kind of uh, uh, going back to. Uh, to you know, first principles and and and, uh, and decide and uh, deciding for federal maritime purposes what the the what the content of the law in this area should be. Um, so it's just a, it's a, an unusual type of case uh, that the Supreme Court occasionally has to deal with. 
So those are the two new cases. So let's move on now to the uh, five opinions that we received this case. So five opinions, new opinions in argued cases. Now, just a quick word about the numbers. That brings us up to 28 opinions for the term so far. Now, there's only six weeks left. And the court is not yet even halfway done with its opinions and argued cases. There's still 34 opinions to go, 28 opinions issued, 34 to go, and only, as I said, six more weeks left in the term. So it just kind of shows how backloaded this this term is um, and, and it just illustrates the very slow start the court got this year. And there's a lot of different theories about why that is. Part of it is because they had a light fall calendar so their their caseload was backloaded but on that light fall calendar were a were several uh, highly contentious cases that are still outstanding that are uh, presumably taking up a good bit of the court's time um but there are other theories uh, some suggest that this is this is uh, justice neil gorsuch's first full term on the court and uh so some suggest that perhaps he is uh um, responsible, in, at least in some part, for the slowdown. Maybe he's writing a lot of separate opinions or lengthy opinions um, that's uh, requiring more back and forth or just taking more time. But um, but uh, th- those are just uh, theories no one really knows at this point. There may be um, uh, you know, a little more to go on when more opinions come out or we get toward the end of the term. Um, but that leaves us with six weeks to go. That means the court has to issue, on average, five to six, week, five to six opinions a week um, to... Uh, to clear all its cases by the end of June. Um, of course, that will likely be backloaded. It's tip- the typical pattern is there's uh, many more cases in the last several weeks of June. So this will be likely to be backloaded. But um, it's certainly possible that from here on out, uh, we could have uh, opinions uh, coming down every every week from here on out. So let's uh, let's move on and talk about these these five cases now. Now, um, Several of the cases were unanimous, uh, or, or, or nearly so, um, and others were, were divided somewhat. There were no sharp 5-4, uh, cases this, in this particular batch. Now, again, it may just be that the, the closer divided cases, the most highly contentious cases are the ones that take the court the longest, and we may see more of those, uh, as we get closer to the end of the term. But let's run through each of these five cases. The first case is United States v. Sanchez Gomez. Now, this was a unanimous opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, and this was a challenge by uh, several criminal defendants in the Southern District of California. It's the federal court. Um, and they were challenging a policy in that district uh, by the marshal service to bring all incarcerated defendants to pretrial hearings in full restraints. And by full restraints, they mean handcuffs that are chained to a, a chain running around the waist and legs shackled and chained together. Um, and this, so this ch- restraint policy was being challenged, but the key issue at the Supreme Court was not the restraint policy, but uh, a, a, a different question. It was a procedural question about whether the Court of Appeals actually had jurisdiction to even review this uh, this restraint policy in this particular case. And the result here is the Supreme Court ordered this case uh, dismissed as moot. Now, here's the story: the four there were four plaintiffs in this case, or four criminal defendants who were bringing the challenge in the case. Um, three of them had already pleaded guilty to the charges in this case, and the fourth um, had, had had the charges dismissed as part of a deferred prosecution agreement. So these um, these uh, plaintiffs were no longer involved in any pretrial um, proceedings, so the specific issue they were complaining about is uh, is over with, is, is done and gone. Now, if, if a plaintiff or, or a 
party to the case that uh, not technically plaintiffs here because this, this came out of a criminal prosecution, but if a party to a case no longer has a live case or controversy, then the case is is moot. There's just there's no more live issue for the court to decide. Now they the the parties in this case uh, had had argued based on certain class action precedents. There's a, a 1975 case called Gerstein v. Pugh. Um, and in that case, the court had allowed a class action to stay alive, even though uh, the named plaintiffs in the class action, the named plaintiffs' claims were moot, um, because other class members had live claims, and so new plaintiffs could be substituted in for the named class members. Um, now, the court said here, though, that, that that was a different situation. That involved an actual certified class action. There's, uh, there's In civil litigation, there's uh, what's known as Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure that governs class actions. And that has the procedures, uh, the requirements for bringing a class action, and procedures where a court can certify a class action. So um, define what the class is that's, that's involved in this case. Um, and and the court says basically formal class certification, the process of actually a court saying, yes, this is a class action and this is the class that's being represented, that changes the status of non-party class members in a very uh, legally significant way. And the the rules that apply to a class action don't apply just because a plaintiff seeks broad relief. Here, here the parties sought uh, a change to the policy that would affect all um uh, pre-trial detainees in that district, um, but it was not a class action. They were suing on their own behalf uh, as a formal matter, and so once their their claims are gone, uh, you know, because they're they're moot, then the case is the case is moot. The court uh, addressed a few other arguments. There's a, a doctrine uh, in mootness that's uh, known as uh, capable of repetition yet evading review, and this is when there's a, a challenge. Um, an action is being challenged in court and the duration of the action is just too short to be fully litigated uh, before it becomes moot. Um, and if there's a reasonable expectation that the same party could be subjected to the same action again, a classic situation that this comes up in is the abortion situation uh, scenario um, where you have, you know, at, at most uh, a nine month window um, when the, uh, the, um, the conflict or the the actual uh, legal claim is a, a live issue, and, and most litigation, especially if it's going all the way to the Supreme Court, is never going to be resolved in that short of a time frame. Um, uh, the court says here that that, that that doctrine just doesn't apply because the uh, reasonable likelihood, the expectation that the same party will be subject to the uh, the, the action again, uh, depends on these defendants uh, going forward and committing another crime in order to be uh, subject to uh, another prosecution, and and they say that that uh, that 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 has never been. Uh, there's a there's a presumption that people will will abide by the law and they don't allow uh, a claim to avoid mootness just because someone says that in the future they may uh, engage in uh, future acts of uh, criminal conduct. Um, and the court, the, so the, this case is moot. The court notes that that it could be subject to challenge through a civil lawsuit, a civil lawsuit, or you know possibly a class action in that context could be brought to chart to to challenge. Uh, this policy, um, but the the means that were used in this case uh, just uh, uh, don't work. So moving on to the next case, the next case is Bird v. United States, and this is a Fourth Amendment case, and it was a unanimous opinion by Justice Kennedy. Uh, although there's a uh, um, there were uh, some concurrences by Justice Thomas and Alito, which I'll also talk about in a few minutes. And this is a case. Um, it was it was the uh, the defendant, uh, Mr. Bird was uh, pulled over um, by the Pennsylvania State Police while driving a rental car. 
Now, the police uh, reviewed the rental agreement, and Bird was not an authorized driver in the car. Um, due to that, him not being authorized driver, the police believed that he had no expectation of privacy in the car, and uh, they searched the car without any consent uh, from Mr. Bird. Uh, in that search, they found a body armor and a large quantity of heroin in the trunk of the car. Now, the, the question, the Fourth Amendment question here is, does an unauthorized driver of a rental car have a reasonable expectation of privacy under the Fourth Amendment? The normal rule for car searches, searches of an automobile uh, stopped on the road, is that the police need probable cause, but there is no requirement to get a warrant. Now, the police argue that if there's no reasonable expectation of privacy, they don't even need probable cause. There's just no um, no protected uh, no protection against the search under the Fourth Amendment. The majority opinion of the court, this is uh, the opinion by Justice Kennedy, the unanimous opinion, says that yes, in fact, there is a reasonable expectation of privacy, and the Fourth Amendment does apply. Uh, potentially to these cases. Um, the court says that this reasonable expectation of privacy uh, test um, is, it's different from, but it's informed by property interests. The court says uh, ownership interest almost always gives a reasonable ex- expectation if someone's driving the car they own, um, but it's not necessary. And, and the court has found in other cases, for example, in a, in a uh, uh, house guest situation, um, there may be a reasonable expectation of privacy, for example, of an overnight house guest who's, who's staying with some, you know, with someone's ha- in someone's house. Um, even though there's no formal property right there, there's still a reasonable expectation of privacy and they still have Fourth Amendment rights in that case. But just the mere fact of being legitimately present is not necessarily enough. Uh, so someone who's just briefly stopping into a house uh, uh, for, for a, a very brief period of time, uh, if a search were to happen while they were there, does not have that reasonable expectation of privacy that would allow them to contest the legality of, of, a, of a search. Um, and uh, But the court uh, talks about the property right and says that the, the right to exclude, a, a kind of a fundamental... Um, uh, aspect of, of uh, property rights is the right to exclude others from a per- particular uh, piece of property. And they say that that's closely related to this reasonable expect- expectation of privacy. And they said that the government had conceded that even an unauthorized driver of a rental car um, did have this right to exclude as to uh, certain others. For example, a carjacker who was trying to uh, get into a car that was being driven by an unauthorized driver, that unauthorized driver would still have the legal right to exclude uh, that carjacker from the car. So the, 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 to, to that extent, it seems like there, there is, uh, uh, this sort of interest that, uh, that might, um, uh, give uh, rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, the court also, uh, addressed the, the, the question of whether the, the fact that this was a violation of the car rental contract meant that there was no reasonable expectation of privacy. And the court argue, the court says that the, these car rental contracts, uh, there are many, many possible violations of the contract. For example, um, it's a violation of some rental car contracts to, to drive the car on unpaved roads. Um, but just the mere fact that someone was violating the contract wouldn't necessarily defeat that expectation. The, those are, the contract violations are matters of um, of uh, uh, insurance and risk allocations between the parties, but they don't answer the privacy question. Um, and uh, they, they said basically it turns on lawful possession. Uh, a car thief or a home burglar has no right to exclude. There's no expectation of privacy. Um, but, uh, but where there's lawful possession, even if it's in violation of, for example, a rental car agreement, then, then there is this uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, the court doesn't 
decide this particular issue. They don't decide whether if there's deliberate fraud in obtaining the rental car. The allegations here are that Bird um, specifically had an acquaintance rent the car, even though it was only going to be driven by Bird. It was rented under someone else's name because Bird uh, worried that uh, apparently given his 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 record, he wouldn't be able to uh, to rent the car. Um Given that it was deliberate, if there was deliberate fraud in obtaining the rental car, is that enough to to make Bird more like a car thief? He's placed more in a in a situation of someone who really had no authorization to be in that car in the first place. The court doesn't decide that question and leaves that open for lower courts to consider on remand. Um, and there's also an argument by the government that they had independent probable cause. So even if probable cause is required in this case, that they say they say they that based on Bird's behavior and his statements. Uh, when he was pulled over, um, they had probable cause and, uh, and they could have, you know, searched under the normal, um, uh, automobile, uh, search, uh, standards. And the court doesn't address that either and says that that may be an open issue on remand if the government has preserved that argument. So, so that, that's the issue. Not all the questions are answered, but there is a, a some Fourth Amendment uh, protection even to an unauthorized driver of a rental car. Now, there's an interesting concurrence by Justice Thomas, and this was joined by Justice Gorsuch. And in this uh, concurrence, Justice Thomas basically questions the court's reasonable expectation of privacy test. It, Thomas says, this wasn't challenged by the parties here, so he agrees with the application uh, in the majority's opinion. Um but Thomas questions whether whether it's a sound test and and thinks that the court should reconsider it. And he specifically points to a property rights based approach, a more thoroughly property rights based approach. Um, but argues that were the court to go that route, they'd have to kind of really return to Fourth Amendment first principles and answer certain questions that uh, really haven't been briefed uh, by the parties here. Um, they, he points to the, the specific language of the Fourth Fourth Amendment, which says that people are secure from should be secure from unreasonable searches of their persons, houses, papers, and effects. And so what he he says the real question here, uh, if you if you want to kind of return to this. Uh, this uh, first principles approach is what sort of a property interest is necessary to qualify as someone's effects to be covered by the fourth amendment. And, and he asks what, what body of law determines that property interest? Is it state law? Is it some uh, common law principle from the time the fourth amendment was adopted? Uh, what's the, what's the right test here? Um, and specifically in this type of case, if there's, if there's unauthorized use does that, uh, like the unauthorized renter uh, or driver of a rental car, does that affect this uh, this property analysis? And this kind of property rights approach is very interesting. Um, it's it's something that uh, Justice Gorsuch has been uh, um, kind of vocally seems to be advocating in oral argument in, in several cases this year. It, it's it's being closely watched. There's, there's a potential in some types of cases to be more protective than the current. Um, uh, Fourth Amendment approach, but but potentially less protective in other areas. But there's huge questions about the actual application of of this kind of a, some sort of property rights based standard. Um, but it's an interesting theme to watch in future Fourth Amendment cases. And in recent years, and this started under uh, just the late Justice Scalia, um, he he really uh, pushed this. There's been more of a focus, even under the the reasonable ex- expectation of privacy test, more of a focus on property concepts in informing that reasonable expectation of privacy. And that was in the majority opinion here, that was, that was very prominent. Um, so it'll just be interesting to see how that plays out um, uh, in, in additional cases going forward. Um, there was a second concurrence in this case, this one by Justice Alito and Justice Alito, it was a very short concurrence where he's just pointing to various 
factors that might come into play in this Fourth Amendment analysis of whether there is a reasonable expectation of privacy. And he's kind of um, pointing these out to the lower court to say these are still open issues that the lower court should consider. And, and he specifically he points to the terms of the particular rental agreement, the circumstances surrounding the rental, the reason why the driver took the wheel, any property right that the driver might have, and the legality of his conduct under the law of the state where the con- conduct occurred. Uh, and it's basically... Justice Alito is agreeing that the Fourth Amendment, um, the Fourth Amendment may have application in an unauthorized driver situation, but he seems to be suggesting pretty strongly that under the particular facts of this case here, the Fourth Amendment protection probably does not apply in Justice Alito's opinion. So he's kind of trying to um, make a, give a little roadmap to a lower court, point the way of how, how they could find that, uh, that even given the Supreme Court's decision here in the, under the circumstances of this particular case, there probably is no Fourth Amendment protection. So, um, that's, uh, that, that's it for the Bird case. So moving on to the next case, uh, we have three more to go. I'll try and run through these pretty quickly. The next case is called McCoy v. Louisiana. Now this is a divided case. It was six to three. Justice Ginsburg wrote for the majority, for the six-justice majority, and the dissent was written by Justice Alito, joined by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch. So that's the three that make up kind of the most uh, conservative wing of the court uh, were the dissenters in this particular case. Here are the basic facts of the case. Now, um, the the defendant, McCoy, was had been convicted of a triple murder of several of his family members, and he was sentenced to death. Now, during the trial, against McCoy's express demands, his counsel repeatedly conceded to the jury that McCoy had killed all three. Um, McCoy had insisted that he wanted an innocence uh, defense, um, and this was based on a, a basically uh, a conspiracy theory that that, uh, that McCoy insisted on that the various um, police and other state actors, including court officials and others, were all conspiring against him, and it was a, a frame up. Um, his counsel believed that this defense, the innocence defense, uh, given the evidence against him, was completely untenable. And the counsel um, wanted instead uh, to to concede to the jury that he was um, that he had actually committed these murders. Now, why would he do that? There's there's two possible reasons, and this is important because there's a there's kind of a there's a real disagreement between the majority and the dissent here at the Supreme Court about uh, about what was really going on here. But there's there's two strategic reasons that the council might concede that he killed these people to the jury. Now, one was that the council may, may have been conceding that because there was abundant evidence that he was actually uh, the, the per- perpetrator of the, of the killings and wanted to focus the jury, not on that, uh, basically the, 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 that point that the uh, council um, believed to be really uncontestable, but on his mental state, on, on, on the mental mental intent required for, for a first degree murder conviction and arguing that due to his, his mental instability and mental illness, he was, he did not have the, the necessary intent to be guilty of first degree murder. Um, but this, the second possible strategic reason for making this concession was just, uh, to basically, um, uh, basically admitting in the the guilt phase, and this is a, this is a capital case. This is a case where the death penalty is on the line. And in those type of cases, the jury has two functions. There's what's known as the guilt phase of the case, where uh, the jury will determine whether someone is uh, Guinness, uh, whether someone is guilty of the 
of the particular crime. And then there's the sentencing phase where the jury has a role in determining whether the, uh, the defendant will receive the death penalty. If they're, if they're convicted in the guilt phase, then the jury will decide on the, in the penalty phase. And in some, uh, capital cases, a, uh, attorney may make the calculation that there really is no, no, viable argument in the guilt phase guilt is so clear there's so much argument um, evidence for guilt that the the more important and better approach is to um, not contest the guilt portion but focus the energy on the mitigation on on creating um, uh, mitigation uh, presenting a mitigating case of why this person should be uh, spared the death penalty why the jury should ex- uh, exercise mercy or why there are extenuating circumstances that make this person uh, somewhat less culpable so that they should not be given the death penalty and the the thought is that by um, strenuously contesting the guilt phase, even when the evidence is so overwhelmingly um, shows guilt, uh, the the attorney basically um, uh, loses all credibility before the jury and isn't able to effectively argue the more important uh, sentencing phase. So those are those are the, the kind of strategic reasons, and we'll come back to that in a minute. So there's also there's a key precedent, a prior Supreme Court precedent in this case, and there's a case called Florida v. Nixon. Now, that case was similar to this case in that the lawyer had conceded the client's guilt um, in order to focus on the uh, the um, sentencing phase uh, and arguing against the death penalty. But the difference in that case was, and in that case, the court had said that this was within the lawyer's strategic judgment. The lawyer had um, the the uh, authority to to decide to concede guilt in that case. Um, the difference there was in that case, the Florida v. Nixon case, the defendant had expressed no opinion either way on whether conceding guilt, whether or not to concede guilt in the uh, the guilt phase of the trial. Um, and so the court said the lawyer in that case wasn't overriding the defendant's uh, specific um, objectives in that case because the defendant had never asserted a uh, specific uh, desire uh, whether or not uh, guilt should be conceded. Now, here it was very different because McCoy was was vehemently opposed to um, to the attorney's uh, approach. Now, the court uh, decides in this case uh, for uh, for McCoy for the the, uh, the the criminal defendant in this case, um, and they they said that the argument was that the right to assistance of counsel is not an all or nothing decision. There are certain key decisions that belong to the client. And the, the standard, the, the, uh, the classic examples of this are the decision whether to plead guilty, so that when entering a plea of guilty or not guilty, whether to waive the right to a jury trial, whether to testify on one's own behalf, and whether to forego an appeal uh, after a defendant loses. Um, and the court says that the decision to assert innocence falls into this category. Um, and the court frames it as saying th- there's a difference between the methods of achieving a particular objective, which which usually fall to the attorney's judgment, and defining what the actual objective is. Now, now here the, the the attorney believed that the objective was avoiding the death sentence, avoiding the the the, the worst outcome that could come for the um, for the defendant. And and in 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 most uh, capital cases, that may be perfectly aligned with the client's desires. But here they said it was clear the client's desire was was to was to continue to assert, uh, you know, and 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 uh, and hopefully prove his actual innocence at trial. Uh, and here's 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 some language from the court. It says, 
He may wish to avoid, above all else, the opprobrium that comes with admitting he killed family members, or he may hold life in prison not worth living and prefer to risk death for any hope, however small, of exoneration. So they're saying that, that, that the objectives of this criminal defendant may be different from, from those that the, the attorney seemed to be pursuing here. Um, and so they found that this was not a decision that the attorney had, uh, had the, uh, the right to over, override um, the defendant's, uh, the defendant's uh, decision on. Um, then the court went on to say that that this this case um, usually ineffective assistance of counsel cases are about competence. They're about you know whether the attorney put on a did a competent job of represent representing. But this case was not about competence. It was about uh, client autonomy, and the court classed this as a type of structural error. This is a type of 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 error that that is not. It's it goes to the core of the trial right, and it's not something it, that can be. Um, uh, it's not something that you can, after the fact, say there was it was no 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 real hurt, no real harm done. Uh, let let it go. It's something that has to be corrected. It doesn't require showing prejudice. So usually, if 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 there's a, an argument that there's ineffective assistance of counsel, normally you have to show that the defendant was prejudiced, that there was some uh, adverse effect due to the uh, inadequate performance of the attorney. Here, um, he does not have to show that. He automatically is entitled to a new trial because that right was. Um, violated. Now, that brings me to the dissent by Justice Alito. And basically, this dissent rejects the majority's framing. Under Justice Alito's reading, this case was not really about conceding guilt. It was about conceding one element of the crime. It was it was conceding the act of the killing, but not the other, the necessary mental state required for a conviction of first-degree murder. And Alito points to this abundant, overwhelming evidence of guilt. It included a 911 call during the course of the murder identifying um, the defendant, a surveillance video showing him purchasing the ammunition shortly before the killing, and the fact that he was later arrested with the murder weapon um, in his possession. And and Alito says, basically, the attorney could not reasonably have put on the conspiracy theory defense that the defendant wanted. Um, and without putting that defense on, basically trying to make the uh, arguing solely the, the lack of the res- requisite mental state um, uh, element of the crime without addressing the, the, any of the government's arguments that he actually committed the killing would be effectively the same as conceding the killing. Uh, and that, that's, that's, that seems to be, you know, what the, what the, the court is saying, um, the attorney should have done in this situation since he couldn't, uh, viably, you know, endorse this, uh, the defendant's, you know, innocence based, uh, conspiracy theory based innocence claim. And Alito goes on to argue this this will be an extremely rare occurrence where this type of a conflict happens. It's only going to happen in capital murder crimes because those, those are the only time where this dual sentencing or uh, dual phase uh, guilt phase sentencing phase exists, and only when there's a defendant who insists on going on tr- going to trial to prove innocence, where the counsel refuses to argue innocence, and there's no time to replace the counsel, and there's an explicit objection to strategy. And Alito argues that this will be a very rare occurrence. Um, uh, but he, he he also he goes on to argue that that if if you take if you if you uh, read the the majority to be to be limiting this to where where the attorney is explicitly conceding guilt um, of the crime charged, then this will be ex- exceedingly rare and 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 kind of not worth the court's time in 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 digging into a case like this. But if you read this more broadly, uh, that the court's rule is supposed to apply anytime an attorney. Um, concedes some element of a crime, some individual fact that has to be proven for a crime, but not the entire guilt of the entire crime, that that would be a, uh, an extremely, um, ill-advised and, and very, uh, uh, broad, um, 
uh, effect. There's, there's, uh, um, attorneys routinely make the decision to concede certain elements of crimes. Uh, an example that's used in Justice Salito's, uh, dissent is when, um, there's a uh, felon in possession of a firearm uh, charge. One of the things that has to be proven is that the person has been convicted of a prior felony. And this is, uh, typically will be, um, conceded, uh, stipulated to, um, to avoid having the prosecution bring in evidence of these prior convictions, which would, um, you know, prejudice the jury against this person who's been convicted of certain prior crimes. Um, Alito raises the question of whether the client could insist otherwise and, 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 uh, not allow the attorney to concede this one fact. Um, that isn't the entire crime, but is one element uh, required for it. Um, and Alito goes on to fault the majority for deciding the issue of whether this is structural error, saying that this wasn't part of the question the court had agreed to uh, to decide and should be left to lower courts to hash out in the first instance. Um, so that that's that's an interest. That's uh, one of the more sharply divided uh, of the opinions that were issued this week. Let's move on quickly. There's two more cases I want to cover. The the next one is called Dada v. United States. This was written by Justice Breyer for a unanimous court. Um, and this deals with wiretap orders under the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. Uh, very briefly, the, the, the issue with this case is that, um, the, the, the statute allowing for, for wiretaps, it requires, um, a judge to issue a wiretap order that, um, the judge, uh, needs to issue the order and the order has to contain certain uh, required information about the wiretap, about the the uh, the person that's being uh, um, targeted, and certain things about the, uh, the the probable cause and the crime um, that they're being uh, wiretapped to get information about. But there's a specific provision of the statute that says that um, that information that's uh, that's obtained via these wiretaps must be suppressed; that's not admitted from uh, to court. In certain circumstances, including in the one that's relevant here, is if the order of approval under which it was intercepted is insufficient on its face. Now, here's the issue here. This involved two brothers named Los and Roosevelt Dada, and uh, they were in Kansas. They were, they, they, there were nine wiretap orders issued with, in relation to a drug distribution conspiracy that they were uh, involved in. And the wiretap orders issued by the judge in the District of Kansas, they authorized interception outside the territorial jurisdiction of the court. Now, the statute, uh, the wiretap statute involved here is limited to the territorial jurisdiction of the court, meaning a, a District of Kansas judge could only um, authorize wiretapping that happened within ter- Kansas. And the way that that is defined is is either the telephone that's being wiretapped is located within Kansas or the interception point, the listening station uh, that's being used to intercept the communication is located within Kansas. Now, the the orders authorized interception outside of Kansas, and and it's conceded that this was this was not proper. This was not uh, not allowed under the statute. So the Dada brothers argued that due to this, the the this this wiretap order, it was insufficient on its face because of this flaw, and therefore uh, the all the communications need to be suppressed. Now the the court um, disagrees with this this argument, and here's the issue. The only evidence that was introduced at their trials was evidence that was obtained within Kansas. There was one out-of-state call that was intercepted, uh, but it was not ever introduced at trial, so it was never in- used against them. All of the wiretaps that were actually used were, were collected or were on phones that were within Kansas or were collected within Kansas, so they fall within what was authorized by the statute and what was allowed by the order. The court basically says 
the portion of the order that authorized in-state interception was perfectly sufficient. There was nothing insufficient about it, and that's the only portion that's relevant to the evidence that was actually introduced. Um, and the, the, the various requirements of information the judge has to include in the wiretap order was all provided. And the court says insufficient um, in, the, in, this, uh, in this context, insufficient on its face, refers to lacking the necessary required information that it's supposed to have. And that wasn't the case here. The language authorizing the out-of-state acquisition of uh, of of uh, or listening to the to uh, uh, phone calls, that out-of-state language was the court referred to as surplusage in this case. It, it had no legal effect um, it, because uh, it, it was it was just unnecessary for the the uh, the intercepts that were actually at issue in the case, the ones that were actually introduced at trial. Um, the court said the remaining language on its own, the, if you took out that language authorizing out-of-state. Um, uh, out-of-state interception, the remaining language in the order would be perfectly sufficient to justify the intercepts that were actually introduced at trial, and that addition doesn't make the make um, what was what would have been otherwise perfectly fine. Adding this additional language about out-of-state collection doesn't turn that into insufficient uh, on its face. So the court rejects that. So that's uh, that's it for that case. And that brings us to the last case of tonight, and this is one of the the bigger more uh, anticipated cases of the term the term I would say this is the first of the more highly anticipated cases this term uh that's that's actually been decided and this is Murphy v National Collegiate Athletic Association NCAA and this is a case that was originally known as um Christie v NCAA for uh Chris Christie the uh, governor of New Jersey and and uh, just after the uh change of governors the case name changed now this case was um it was uh, the breakdown is is a, a little bit strange, and I'll get to that in a minute. It's you could call it a kind of a seven to two opinion, but that's a it's a little um, fuzzy there. Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion, fully for six members of the court, plus partially for Justice Breyer, and the two who were dissenting were Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. Um, and 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 uh, I'll I'll come back to Justice Breyer and 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 where he fits in 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 a few minutes. But just for some quick background, this involves a federal statute called PASPA, which stands for the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. And this is a act about sports gambling. So the 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 subject of this case is about New Jersey's um, efforts to allow sports betting in New Jersey. And the the idea here is PASPA um, when it was passed. It doesn't directly, well, it's a little more complicated. I'll get to that later. But for the, the, the main provision that's at issue in this case, it doesn't directly outlaw sports gambling, but instead makes it unlawful for a state to, quote, sponsor, operate, advertise, promote, license, or authorize uh, various things, including sports betting. Um, and it, it, so it, in, in this provision, it doesn't make sports gambling a federal crime, um, but it tells states, states cannot authorize, promote, et cetera, sports betting. Uh, now Nevada, Nevada was, was grandfathered in, so they weren't, they weren't, um, covered by this, this provision because they already had a, a, uh, sports betting, um, uh, industry, uh, in existence and, and, uh, and the federal government let, left that alone. Um, but that, that's the, the, the issue. And, um, what happened was in 2012, New Jersey passed a law authorizing sports gambling. The NCAA and uh, certain professional sports leagues brought an action to enjoin this new New Jersey authorization law. New Jersey countered by arguing that PASPA was unconstitutional, and I'll get to the grounds of the unconstitutionality a little later. But what happened was the Third Circuit, the the Federal uh, Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, um, upheld the constitutionality of PASPA, 
um, but said that PASPA wouldn't prevent a state just repealing its state prohibitions, um, but they, they but it prohibited a affirmatively authorizing um, certain uh, activity by the states. Um, now, in 2014, New Jersey responded to this previous uh, lawsuit and its uh, its defeat by passing instead a partial repeal of the state's sports betting prohibitions. It repealed the prohibition on sports betting, except. Uh, only in certain, for certain categories. It was for persons 21 years of age or older who are at a horse racing track or casino or gambling house in Atlantic City. And it only applied for wagers on sporting events that did not involve a New Jersey college team or college event taking place in New Jersey. So, so it was a partial repeal of the ban, uh, the state ban on sports betting. Now this was challenged again. And the argument was in part that this selective repeal was basically equivalent to authorizing it in certain, for certain people and in certain venues. Now, um, the issue in this case is something known as the anti-commandeering rule. And this is a, a principle and, and it, it, it really, it derives from mostly from two Supreme Court cases, a 1992 case called New York v. United States and a 1997 case called Prince v. United States. But the basic idea is that the federal government, Congress, cannot commandeer the uh, the instruments of state government. They can't force a state to uh, impose to enact certain legislation. They can't enforce. Uh, they can't force state officials to enforce um, federal uh, laws to enforce federal legislation. Um, the federal government can directly legislate, directly regulate individuals or businesses or, or or entities within a state, but they can't force the state to do. Federal bidding. That's the, the general idea behind the anti-commandeering laws. And there's, there's several reasons behind that. Part of it is just the, the, about the balance of power between the federal and state governments. But part of it, the court has, has argued that this, this, uh, this, um, enables political accountability because when, when people will know that when the state politicians enact certain state laws, then that's, that's, that's because that's a, that's an issue of, of, of state law and something they can hold, uh, these state legislators accountable for, not something that the federal government is forcing the states to do. And, uh, the federal government, federal legislators can't avoid their own accountability for certain unpopular acts by forcing the states to actually, uh, do those, do the dirty work for them. And also an argument is that it avoids, uh, cost shifting by, by having federal policy, by forcing states to, um, uh, take on all the expenses of implementing some policy that's really being pushed by the federal government. So that's the kind of some of the policy reasons behind this anti-commandeering rule. Um, but uh, the, the key question in this case is, is what does PASPA mean? Fundamentally, what does it mean? And, and, and there's, there's two different interpretations. What does it mean when it says a state cannot authorize sports betting? New Jersey says that authorize just means permit. If, if a state allows something to happen, then the state is, has authorized that. So under this reading, the law would even prohibit the repeal of existing prohibitions. So if a, a certain state had a had a, a ban on the books of some activity and it just flat out repealed that ban, that this that would be a violation of PASPA because they would then be authorizing it by not by no longer um, prohibiting it. Um, on the other side, the leagues argued that it's actually narrower than that. Authorized means taking affirmative steps to sanction some activity. Now they say that in this case, a partial re- repeal is enough to qualify as that. Um, but but they say that that it's 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 not just um, re- removing prohibitions, but it's actually somehow affirmatively sanctioning some sort of uh, activity. Now the court says that the New, Jer- New Jersey's reading is the correct one. When a prohibition is lifted. The activity is authorized under a, a normal reading of that language. Um, 
And the court says that under the the the, the view pushed by the the leagues, uh, it, it's unclear when a partial reveal repeal would be okay and when it would when it would not. Um, and uh, so 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 that's that, that's how the court reads the law. But ultimately, it doesn't seem to matter that much. The court's analysis. The court seems to say that it would come out the same either way. Um, the court says basically. The state here is telling the government, the federal government here is telling state governments what they can and can't do by saying you can't authorize certain things by restricting the way they can, the, the way the state government uh, has to legislate, um, not allowing them to repeal certain laws that are on the books or, 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 or regulating the way they're allowed to repeal certain laws on the books is, is commandeering the organs of state government for federal purposes. Um, they, the, uh, Interestingly, the, the the big argument in this case between the majority and the dissent, the big argument is on something separate. It's, it's a concept known as severability, and severability is the idea that uh, sometimes when you have a, a, a complicated uh, statutory scheme, if a court finds that one portion of that statutory scheme, one provision or, or one section or something like that, is unconstitutional for some reason, so it can't be enforced, um, is is just that single section uh, rendered a nullity? Or does it affect the entire statutory scheme? Uh, and that's the question of severability. Is this provision, um, this this uh, this ban on authorizing uh, on a state government authorizing sports betting, is that severable from the rest of the law so that the rest of the law can survive, even though this um, this piece is uh, is unconstitutional? And the court looks at several other provisions of the law aside from the authorizing language, and 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 holds that none of them are severable. And the, the issue here is that the court engages in, um, kind of a, a, uh, uh, it's, it's a, a, a hypothetical, um, kind of imaginative reconstruction of what Congress would have wanted to do had it known that a particular provision was unconstitutional. Would Congress still want to have enacted the rest of the law, the, the surviving portion of the law, or Having chopped out certain pieces of the law, would Congress have have preferred not to have enacted the law at all in the first place? Um, and uh, the the court engages in this kind of this kind of analysis, and the majority says that uh, that, that Congress w- would not have wanted uh, certain other provisions to to, to survive if if uh, if the the main thrust of this. Uh, this passed by law, the the pro- pro- prohibition on states authorizing or licensing um, sports betting. If that main piece was not able to be um, banned by the federal government, then the other pieces, the the court argues, the federal government wouldn't have wanted them to survive. Now, a key portion uh, that uh, where the dissent. Uh, differs is there's a second provision of PASPA. So not the provision we've been talking about. This about the federal government uh, or about states authorizing sports betting. But there's a second part that actually directly regulates private parties. It prohibits private parties from sponsoring, operating, or promoting a sports betting activity pursuant to the law of a governmental entity. So the majority says that is supposed to work hand in hand with the first part. It says, first, a state is not allowed to authorize sports betting but if they do authorize it, then any private party that participates in, in, in promoting or sponsoring or operating this is also in violation of federal law. Um, so it says without that first part, the second part doesn't make any sense. It doesn't serve the federal federal purpose. Um, now, I'll come back to that in, in, in just a moment. Um, the uh, Justice Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas had a, had a concurrence where he basically 
really doesn't like this uh, severability doctrine, this whole method of um, of of hypothetically uh, um, uh, this counterfactual um, analysis where you imagine what Congress would have done had they known. Um, and he, he, he says he agrees basically with the application in this case. If we're going to use that doctrine, this is as good as we can do with it. But, uh, Thomas doesn't like it. He says that this really conflicts with the, the, the court's normal focus on the specific case before it and only, you know, ruling based on, on the actual, uh, controversy at issue. Um, and, and also he says it conflicts with the normal approach to statutory interpretation, which doesn't look at these kind of hypothetical considerations of, of, of legislate, legislators. Um, uh, but he, but he says in this, in this particular case, uh, no one challenged using this, uh, this standard, um, counterfactual approach to severability. So moving on to Justice Breyer. Now, Justice Breyer was, uh, joined the majority for the portion that dealt with the anti-commandeering rule and whether the, um, the, the uh, prohibition on states authorizing sports betting was unconstitutional. Justice Breyer uh, joined that part. But where he dissents and where he does not join the majority is the severability analysis. And and he argues that, that the court is just looking at it wrong, that the, the direct regulation of sponsoring or operating uh, sports betting, the, the regulation of, of private entities involved in that, that's within Congress's power. That's not commandeering. And he says that this can stand on its own without the prohibition on state authorization. Um, that Congress may have wanted basically kind of a federal backstop. First, we say states, you're not allowed to authorize this kind of sports betting. Um, but if for some reason the state does anyway, then you're going to tell private entities don't participate in this because that's also a violation of federal law. Um, and there's no reason that uh, having got rid of the, fir- the first part, um, they wouldn't want to let the second stay. And also he, he notes that this, this would basically, um, it would, it would, it would basically make, uh, New Jersey's, um, repeal uh, ineffectual, um, because even though they could, they could, uh, repeal, uh, private entities would not, uh, be able to, uh, operate these sports betting, um, um, operations without violating the second part. And there's no reason that Congress wouldn't have, uh, given that Congress was trying to, uh, stamp out and prevent sports betting, there's no reason they wouldn't have wanted that to survive. So, so he disagrees with that, uh, severability analysis. And that brings me to the dissent by Justice Ginsburg, which is joined by Justice Sotomayor and again, joined in part by Justice Breyer. Now, one thing that's, that's kind of odd about this dissent is in fact, the Ginsburg dissent doesn't actually take a position on the anti-commandeering um, argument. It, it assumes for the sake of argument, argument that uh, the regulation, the direct regulation of the state, uh, the, the, the state being able to authorize uh, sports betting assumes for the sake of, ar- sake of argument that that violates the anti-commandeering rule um, for the purpose of getting to the severability question, but it never actually takes a position one way or the other on the anti-commandeering rule. So it's kind of odd on the anti-commandeering. It's kind of a seven to zero opinion with two justices taking no position. Um, but Justice Ginsburg would go, would go on to allow the rest of the, uh, similar to Justice Breyer would allow the rest of the statute to stay in effect. Um, saying it's, it's not reasonable to think Congress would have wanted no law at all rather than the partial effect that would be gained from, from allowing the rest of the, the act to stay in effect. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, a, a real, real divide here on the application of the severability doctrine. Um, and, uh, it, it, uh, severability is a real puzzle in the law. It, it, uh, it creates some, some very formal legal puzzles on, on kind of, uh, how it meshes with, um, with the, 
the courts, both the courts typical approaches to statutory interpretation, but also to kind of the traditional understanding of what it means really to strike down a law. Um, where, uh, there's a, there's an argument that, that kind of the formal, uh, in, in kind of a traditional formal sense, courts don't really strike down laws. They just refuse to apply them in particular cases. And severability, um, is kind of at odds with that traditional understanding. Uh, but it also has a lot of practical problems where you run into these issues of, of how do you go about, uh, hypothetically deciding what Congress would have done in some situation that never actually really existed in the real world. Um, but it's unclear whether, other than Justice Thomas, whether there's any appetite on uh, wholly rethinking this area of law in, in some way or another. Uh, another interesting thing about this case is that, again, I, I mentioned that on the, the actual anti-commandeering issue, um, the, the court was basically seven to zero with two justices not right, taking a position on it. Um, some of the, the earlier severability or the earlier um, – Anti-commandeering cases that this is that this is based on the 1990s era cases were much more closely divided. The New York v. United States case from 1992 was a six to three decision, and the Prince v. United States, the 1997 case, was a five to four split along conservative liberal lines. Um, so those were those were much more closely uh, divided. And anti-commandeering has long been a somewhat controversial um, doctrine. Uh, but here it seems like there's, there's not much appetite on the court to fight against anti-commandeering. It seems like several members of the, of the court have either made their peace with it or in, the, in Ginsburg and Sotomayor at the very least, uh, don't, uh, don't, didn't feel like having that fight in this particular case. Um, so those are the cases, uh, uh, that were the opinions from this week. Um, so that, Basically, that brings us to the end of this live stream episode. Our next live stream will be a week from today. That's Thursday, May 24th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual weekly live stream time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, next week's live stream, uh, the court held its private conference earlier today. So an orders list is expected Monday's Monday morning, and that may have... Uh, new granted cases for next term may or may not. We don't know. Um, the court's public information office also says that opinions are likely Monday morning. So, um, so we will be getting, uh, at least one, uh, it looks like at least one and, and hopefully more opinions coming down on Monday. Now, as I mentioned before, there's only six weeks left of the term. There are 34 cases left to be decided. That means an average of five to six cases a week, but this will probably be back backloaded with more cases coming out and, you know, a higher concentration of cases in the second half of June. Um, now, the major cases, the cases that are really highly anticipated, uh, really the, the Murphy v. NCAA, the sports betting case, is the only big one that's really come down so far. The rest are still pending. That includes the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. That's about um, the uh, anti-discrimination, uh, the interaction between anti-discrimination law and First Amendment rights against uh, compelled speech. Um, there's the uh, Carpenter case. That's about uh, the uh, standards for the government to obtain cell site location data um, to locate uh, which tower someone's cell, fi- cell phone was connected to in order to uh, to uh, um, find their location over certain periods of time. The partisan gerrymandering cases about whether there are um, uh, whether there are constitutional limits on gerrymandering for partisan political gain. There's a case from Cal- California about the uh, the FACT Act, the California's Reproductive FACT Act, which requires crisis pregnancy centers, those are pro-life centers, to uh, post certain information about abortions. Um, and there's also a case about 
the uh, enforceability of employment arbitration provisions, uh, a, play, a case about uh, union collective bargaining fees and whether unions can uh, can collect those from non-members. There's a whole bunch of really highly anticipated cases. They're all still outstanding. And so we'll be watching for all of those over the next uh, month and a half. Now, from here on out, the court schedule is every Thursday. It has its private conference and issues orders on Mondays um, and likely opinions. Um, the court will almost certainly add some additional opinion days later in the term um, just to spread out the uh, the opinions. But uh, but we won't know about that until uh, till it gets much closer. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at counting to five.com or on the counting to five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at counting to five or send me an email at Mike at counting to five.com. Please subscribe to the counting to five YouTube channel or to the audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been counting to five.